And good morning and good afternoon, everyone. This is Nelson Sombrano here with Investing in America, and I have... Panagiotta Bimenidou of the podcast Global Greek Influence. And I guess our, and guests, my, I, I guess our audience might think, okay, what are they doing now? What are they doing together? So what we're doing is we have a collaboration today. And um, we're looking to give you a different perspective. Okay, so I'm going to introduce Jota. Uh, Jota's um, background. Jota has a very unique background, um, like all of our guests do. Uh, and Jota's background, she is, she is, well, how can I put this? How can I put this? She is, uh, I guess I'll put it to you quite bluntly. She is beauty and brains. Okay, so she is a Greek expat. Um, she lives in London. And, um, you know, she got her undergraduate degree from uh, Leeds University in London and she went back to Greece and on top of that, went back to London, got a PhD in chemical engineering, right? Those really easy, easy, easy degrees like uh, chemical engineering. And she's also the host of a podcast that focuses on the influence of Greek expats in the world. So we've got a very, very unique um, person here. And the reason is, is that because we're focused on, my podcast is on foreigners investing in the U.S. And Jota's podcast is focused on the Greek influence overseas. You know, we figured we'd do a collaboration. So we're going to be having kind of this kind of halfway host interview and halfway host um, these two people having a conversation. So I'm going to turn it back to Jota. Excuse me, well, Jota. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that we are also both in a way expats because I lived abroad. So it's not just about our audience uh, or maybe uh, the target audience for people who are expats, but we've also experienced living abroad. I, for example, left Greece as an adult to study at the University of Leeds and then went back to Greece and came back for my PhD. But also, Nelson has been uh, a person who has traveled abroad quite extensively uh, for his uh, first profession uh, while he was in the U.S. Army. Uh, but at the same time, he also uh, spent some time in Colombia as um, a child whose parents were Colombian. So even though Nelson was born, in the United States, he lived part of his childhood in Colombia. At the same time, Nelson uh, today is the founder of Normandy Group, a real estate investment firm uh, which specializes in acquiring income, uh, multifamily properties generating a high rate of return. Previous to this, Nelson had been recalled to active military service in the U.S. Army, serving in various special forces and military intelligence units around the world. And now he has started his podcast called Invest in America. So, Nelson. Okay. Please, I must say investment uh, in general but in particular to real estate is a zone of the unknown to me. So how, just to start from your background, what have you gained from serving the U.S. Army in various special forces and military intelligence units around the world? Um, 
Well, for me and, and in my family, the, uh, the concept, the idea of public service is very important. Um, and I, I have to admit, for me, it's one is it was public service, um, although I wasn't born when he was president. But the influence was there was uh, President Kennedy. Um, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So uh, that was an important thing, uh, a part of me growing up and, and in my family. So I saw that as one way. The other thing, quite frankly, is um, as a kid, I grew up watching James Bond movies, right? So that looked a lot more exciting to me than working in a bank. Um, so I said, okay, in the future, that's something I want to do. I want to taste, I want to experience that life. Um, I mean, the places look so glamorous. So uh, just something that I could see myself up on that big screen there in all those places and doing those things because they had a big impact. So being in the U.S. Army uh, and living abroad, um, did it feel glamorous? Um, well, the first thing is, is I was a person who was in the reserves. In the United States, we have a very well-developed reserve system. Our reserve military is very well-developed. It deploys everywhere, Afghanistan, Iraq, South America. So I had the benefits of a civilian career at the same time, I also had a parallel military career, too, that would go on there. Um, and each would enhance the other. Um, and the things, as far as maybe the word is, would not be glamorous, but the word would definitely be significant or an impact or contribution. Um, because I looked at it as if I was doing something that had or participating in things, sometimes leading, things that had a definitely an impact to the people in that country and that region. And um, I, I don't like being part of, I like being a person who can make a difference, not sit on the sidelines and complain. So that's the part that caught my attention. And glamorous is very relative, okay? It's very relative. <laughs> because I was thinking of the James Bond uh, glamour you mentioned before, and I thought, okay, is there really something there? At the same time, when I was thinking my life as an academic, I thought it would also be glamorous, right? And many people think it is like uh, you, uh, as soon as you are uh, a university lecturer, you own a big house that you travel extensively all over the world. You have all these experiences and you buy maybe a Mercedes or a Jaguar, but this is not really the case. And I was thinking that sometimes we might build expectations uh, and we get disappointed because of those expectations. So in your case, after you uh, left the U.S. Army, was this a conscious decision? Yeah, it, it was a very much a conscious decision. Um, and you're talking about expectations. So my expectation was really in the fact that I always wanted to be in a position to contribute. Um, and I describe it as before 9-11, after 9-11. I was scheduled to be at the World Trade Center on 9-11. And I wasn't there. I was just a lucky break for me. I was not there. I would not have survived considering where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be having breakfast at the top, the restaurant at the top. So um, I would have died. And after 9-11, 
what military service allowed me to do, being in the reserves, is to go contribute and be a part of the United States response to 9-11, literally right afterwards. So <clears throat> that part did not disappoint because I wanted to contribute. I, I saw myself in the future as talking to my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren and um, he says, you know, great granddaddy, what did you do? He says, because a lot of people are just angry and bitter and I hate foreigners and Arabs and Muslims and blah, blah, blah. And I could say, you know what? I actually did something. I participated. Mm-hmm. So the part of, again, public service and contribution, uh, camaraderie is a huge thing, huge, huge thing. And um, I left because there comes a certain time or a person needs to make a, a dramatic cut on things um, because of the law of diminishing returns, right? So, um, so there. Mm-hmm. It's true. It uh, takes many times uh, a dramatic event to happen in our lives or to experience even indirectly a dramatic event and to actually see all the sadness that that an event such as the 9-11 has caused to make us realize what is really worth in life and maybe even to change a direction in our lives and make our lives better. Because at the end of the day, you see that sometimes we might get disappointed from things we, that happens that happen in our lives. And then when we see such dramatic events, we feel how lucky we are that we have another chance that we have plenty of opportunities of changing. And then you moved directly from, uh, you moved directly from serving in the army to the real estate or were there in between steps? Yeah, so, so the way it happened with me is I was always, I was involved in financial services. So I worked for an investment company uh, before I was recalled back to active duty. And um, I had been dabbling in real estate, thinking about it. I bought a house. And um, so what, uh, what happened was 9-11 happened. I got a severance package, right? Because there was no more business. And with that severance package, I bought a small multifamily property. Uh, literally, the next month, I was recalled back to active duty. So I deployed overseas. Uh, when I came back, I uh, went to work for Lloyd's of London handling kidnap and ransom insurance. And because of that, I was recalled to active duty again. I did a couple of deployments and then I bought another building. And in that one, I partnered up with the city of Fort Lauderdale. And I did that while I was deploying overseas. So at the same time, um, and what interested me about real estate was the ability to increase my net worth, develop a semi-passive income or passive income, um, and that I could have another asset working for Nelson without Nelson having to show up every day. So that gave me a lot of security and peace of mind. Uh, also, in investing, it's a lot like uh, military intelligence work. You got to pick out the right location, the right trends, the right indicators. I really enjoy that. And um, I also like the fact that I could get the city of Fort Lauderdale to be my investment partner, too. So that was a, that was a, big, uh, a big coup. So it was something that happened concurrently, parallel to one another. Thank goodness for technology. And um, when I left the military, I wrapped everything. I went to Africa. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and I said, okay, 
I want to grow Normandy Group. That's perfect. So do you have any more plans of, um, I understand you have a busy schedule, but do you have more plans of like climbing or something you're looking forward to in the next months? Well, in the next month, I'm not climbing any mountains, that's for sure. Um, <clears throat> not physical mountains anyway. Uh, I will be going back to Africa to finish climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, it's a very difficult uh, climb, so I'll be going back. We'll be hitting the summit on July 18th, Nelson Mandela Day. Um, and to the viewers, to the listeners, I invite you. Look for Trek for Mandela. Um, it's a very good organization. And uh, Jota, you're also invited as well. The... Awesome. Um, the yeah, to come climb Mount Kilimanjaro with us. The um, in the next ninety days, I guess I'll break it down. Um, first thing is solidifying this one project that we're working on. It's a large student housing complex, and um, it puts us on the same level as institutions. So um, that'll be coming to fruition. Also, uh, we have an Airbnb division getting that uh, wrapped up, solidified. The, um, on the physical side, you know, I'm looking to get down to 12% body fat, um, and that'll get me ready for Kilimanjaro. Uh, making some changes in my home environment, because I think that if your environment is squared away, you can, you can think on a more agile basis. And, um, one thing that I'm doing now is I'm taking salsa classes. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get more comfortable dancing salsa. I haven't thought or that I'm the Colombian becoming more comfortable. Yeah, uh -huh. I haven't thought that a Colombian needs salsa lessons. I think that you know how to dance salsa since uh, you're born or something. No? Right. So, so, the, so the doctor said that when I was born, I had a birth defect. They told my mother, he says, your son does not know how to dance salsa. So that's why he's, <laughs> that was the birth defect, you know. I see. Um, how well connected do you feel to the Colombian culture? I know that there are plenty of Colombians living in Miami. Is there like this uh, sense of community uh, of uh, Colombian expats? Uh, do you still have relationships with uh, friends and family in Colombia? Yeah, so, so okay, so that's a really interesting question. Um, my, I am a Colombian American. And I lived in Colombia uh, as an adult, too. Um, when I was with the military, I was assigned to the U.S. Embassy. So I had a diplomatic status living in Colombia as a diplomat. Um, so my, I have a very unique, I guess you could call it, relationship with Colombia. Part of public service was I was sent to help advise the Colombian government um, in its, in its uh, fight against the FARC. So... I have a kind of a unique relationship. First of all, I do not look Colombian, right? Physically, I do not look. I'm much taller than most Colombians, okay? So when they see me automatically, they think he's an American, okay? They think he's a gringo, el, el gringo, el gringo, the, el americano. And um, so by default, they don't ever think my parents are Colombian, okay? Um, and I went to a school for not Colombian kids, but for expat kids down there. So I see Colombia, I can, I have empathy with Colombia. I have compassion for Colombia. Um, and I, 
sometimes I feel a little bit of disappointment because I can see so much potential the country has. Okay. I said to myself, my goodness, it's the only country in Latin America that has two coasts like the United States. It has all these resources and, and, uh, and things continue to happen. So I am very connected. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I was, I made a, I guess, I think I made a significant contribution to in Colombia's 40 year civil war, part of the group that made a significant contribution to end that. Um, and now I just uh, want Colombia to continue to go forward and capitalize on that. Um, because now they're in a great position and it's up to them to win or lose. So you've, uh, you made a choice in your life to, to offer back to a society, even uh, to a society that, of course, your parents were born and lived in Colombia for a significant uh, time in their lives, for a significant part of their lives. But even though you were not born in Colombia, you still managed through your position to feel that you have contributed in peace uh, in Colombia. And if we now look into your current uh, professional adventures, how do you think uh, giving back to the society is done through real estate or how is it done through your podcast? Well, it, it, it's a combination. It's kind of like a Venn diagram, right? And in the middle of the Venn diagram, that's where the, that's the sweet part. So for real estate, uh, we focus on income producing properties, right? Um, and an income producing property is a property that generates income. It is very low on the risk scale. There's still risk, but it's a lot less riskier than a development where it's just a vacant lot and hopefully someone will build something there. So um, that by itself is, is, is much better for an investor, depending on the type of investor. Um, as far as contributing back to society, in a lot of these countries, the elite or the wealthier, they have a challenge. They might've made their wealth there, but then there could be political instability, economic instability, security instability, and they may say, I need to move some of my assets to a safer location. And that safer location is the United States for the most part. Um, I believe that what I'm doing is a continuation of public service. Why? Because by doing that, I also get to expose these people to U.S. values, U.S. customs, U.S. culture, U.S. accountability. So indirectly and directly, I get to help continue to build that bridge. And what value do you bring to your podcast audience? Is it only focused on the real estate or is it also about your guest stories? Well, um, everyone's got a story. Every and everyone's got a good story, right? So the podcast itself is initially was a thought of the, the life cycle of a real estate transaction excuse me, the life cycle of a real estate investment. A transaction is something that happens one day, but a life cycle could be generations. It could be a legacy. It could be, if you look at Rockefeller Center, that is the legacy of the Rockefeller family that's running on a hundred years. So it could be that. And within that life cycle, there's a lot of different components. Um, but the more I thought about it, I said, wait a minute, I'm leaving out a key component. And that's the component of the heart, 
of the mind of the spirit. So I also have on board as guests is uh, people that are going to talk about fear, people that are going to talk about mindset. I'm even going to have a uh, person that's going to talk about relationships because guess what? Making these money moves is a lot of times is what destroys relationships. You know? So I'm going to bring all these people on board because this is the part that happens that people don't see. So I'll be bringing on these guests on board. I'm looking at bringing on board an astronaut. He'll be talking about fear, uh, a relationship person, a key, 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 male and female relationship person. I'll be bringing um, uh, some highly ranked business coaches uh, as well. So these are the kinds of people that I'll be bringing on board to complement the real estate part. And how about your fears? What fears do you have? Oh my goodness. We don't have enough time on this show to talk about those. <laughs> um, the, um, I, again, I guess my, my biggest fear is I want to make sure that when I leave the planet, you know, which happens to us all is that I've made a, a, a substantial contribution, you know, that I've, I've left a legacy and made a contribution. A positive contribution, I'll say that. Do you think fears are linked to failures or what we perceive as our own fears that are linked to what we perceive as our own failures? Wow, do I think fears are linked to failures? Um, I, I think a lot of fear is, um, it could be looked at even a perceived failure. Because um, the, the, the event hasn't happened. The event has not happened. But we feel it as if it's happened. But it hasn't happened. You know? But we feel that it's happened. We, I mean, we feel it. And it hasn't happened. But we, I feel it. I can't talk about it. But I feel it before it's happened. So in a sense, when we, we experience and when we feel failure, it's like we feel our fears taking life. Yeah, yeah because they, uh, I know for me, they, they live again in my mind. And then after my dinner, they jump into my heart. Sometimes they jump into my feet. And, um, and they're there and they grow and they have babies and they continue. So, uh, you know, and again, sometimes they haven't even happened. Or sometimes uh, I magnify them, I blow them up. Okay. So. Um, um, mm -hmm. So you said uh, that 9-11 has been uh, an enlightening uh, event in your lifetime. Uh, do you have any enlightenment moments coming from your personal life? Um, I guess, yeah, if it's an enlightened moment, I guess, uh, a couple of them is if I need to tell someone something, I tell them, I, I don't hold back. Uh, so for example, if I miss someone or want to tell someone that I love them, I tell them, um, and some people will say, well, you should wait, uh, this and that. I said, first of all, tomorrow's not guaranteed to anybody. So I don't want to have the regret of 
not telling someone, hey, I love you, I miss you, or hey, what you did bothered me, or even having a simple conversation. So one of my, and I guess you could call it a regret, is uh, there was a soldier, and we were deployed together, and we would actually talk about investments, right? And we were deployed, we were overseas, we were both in Colombia, and he wanted to talk to me about something, and I couldn't talk to him, I was just so focused. And I could tell he wanted to talk, he left, we redeployed, I came back to the United States, he went back to his base, and I was thinking, you know what, I gotta finish that conversation with that guy. So um, I was thinking about that and I went to my PO box and I get a magazine every day, not every day, once a week called Army Times. And, it, and then on the inside it has, unfortunately, uh, the pictures of all the soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan, Iraq. And I opened it up and there he was. Um, and he had been killed the week before in Afghanistan in a, a roadside attack. And I remember, and that really bothered me. I, again, it goes back to 9-11. If there's something you want to tell, for me, I want to tell someone, I tell them immediately. I tell them, you know, I don't try to be coy about it and wait because there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. So I like to let them know. I like to let them know. Um, because you never know. And if it's something, especially like an apology, I get it out of quick. I get it out of quick because I don't want to let them fester whatever it was. I totally understand what you're saying because we might not have the opportunity to say what we want to say unless we do it at the time that we feel like it. It's, there's no point, there's no reason of holding it back and wait for the most appropriate time to uh, to uh, say, say somebody that you love, love, love them, and, and when, yeah. it comes, when it comes to, yeah, it, when it comes to apologies, it's a little weird because, because you know what, you know what, you feel like you want, you want to, maybe you want to, excuse me, like, we, we, we're getting a bad connection here, okay? Okay, I just okay, closed my video. video. Okay. Okay, Jyota, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. I posted my do... video. Yeah. So, can you hear me now well? Yeah, it's still coming in echo. I'm I getting... don't know why this happens. It's not my microphone. It must be the connectivity. Hmm. Okay. Let's... um. Well, heck, let's just go through it. Let's go through it. Can okay, you, you were saying? Well? Can you hear me now well? Oh, most, much better. Wow, much better. Okay. Um, so where have we had this left? Well, well, let's do this. Let me... Um... Oh, I remember now. So I was thinking that maybe it's really worth uh, saying the things we want to say to people that matter to us the moment uh, we, we think about it. If we want to say somebody that I, we love them, we should say it straight away because there might not be another appropriate time. But then when we apologize to someone, 
is the apology enough? Uh, what if a person, for example, a person to whom you've apologized, they come back saying, you know what, because this thing happened now, it reminds me of that other thing that happened in the past, so your apology doesn't matter as much. How okay. do you deal with well, that? Yeah, um, yeah, and I think at a certain stage in life, that's going to happen to all of us, right? So, um, you know, it's all baby steps, right? It's all baby steps um, because things have to sink in too, right? You know, uh, a lot of things that seem like a big fear and a problem after you get a good night's sleep, <laughs> the next day I wake up, it's not, it wasn't that bad, okay? Um, and it's just to let people know, uh, I mean, for me, it was learning about compassion, it was learning about having empathy for people, um, being a good shoulder for them, and uh, letting them know. Uh, I think that's the first step, right? Um, and people can say things uh, and feel two different things, right? People can say something and feel something totally different. But I, I think for me, the first step is to actually say it and demonstrate compassion and empathy for them. Because I don't know, I have no clue what else is back in their brain that because of that is now like a volcano coming up um, to doing that. So that, that's how I, I look at it. And, um, this is quite right. Uh, I also think that if a, an apology is worth it, if there is also forgiveness. Uh, yeah. So uh, a person might accept your apology, but they might not forgive you. And uh, I don't think there's something we can actually do about that. I think forgiveness is quite important, even when it comes to my personal um, obstacles or to my personal fears uh, or to things that might have happened in the past with uh, colleagues, with friends, with partners. I have this sense of forgiveness, so I try to not to have any bitterness, even um, when uh, a very traumatic event uh, might happen. And I don't know, I'm quite sensitive, I think, emotionally. Uh, and it doesn't come out there maybe as often, for my own reasons, of course. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Forgiveness is an important thing. Uh, if the other person chooses not to forgive, um, they, they might be getting some payoff from that. But at the end of the day, uh, the person that holds on to the grudge, that's the one that's going to pay the price. That's going to be the person that pays the price. Um, I, I've done my part by acknowledging, uh, demonstrating, and I'll do it over and over again. Um, but if it's someone that I care about, especially, um, it's important to let them know and let them know quick and early uh, because grudges only grow. They grow. Um, but at, and at the end of the day, it's also about, um, I think, becoming a better human being. Um, you know, not being spiteful or anything like that. But I, I have that. Uh, I think we all humans, we're, we, we have that. And it's a question of recognizing that and kind of working that down.
Do you think forgiveness applies to our professional life too? Oh, it has to. It has to. Um, because that's a, even more in the professional life because um, uh, more things, uh, other things, not more, are expected of us. Right? In some cases, we have to be a follower. Other cases, we have to be a leader. Um, and, um, and we shouldn't, I don't expect apologies. It's nice when they come. It's nice for people to recognize because I say, wow, this person recognized it. But uh, if I put that expectation on people, when it doesn't come, then I'm the one carrying the weight now, right? So um, it's important for me to forgive, uh, forgive people. That that doesn't mean I forget. That doesn't mean I don't use it as an experience. Um, but I don't want to carry extra burden, extra emotional burden, because that takes up my mental bandwidth. And then I, it, it clouds my judgment. It takes away my energy from other things. And it kind of pulls me down some. Um, that, again, I don't forget about it, but I don't, I cannot allow it to take up too much mental space or emotional space, which is even worse. Well, it's true. Unfortunately, even in our professional lives, we might experience emotions. And, uh, but we tend to be more objective or to act more objectively when it comes to our professional life compared to our uh, personal life. At some point, I remember that you mentioned, not now in this conversation, but uh, at some point earlier when we had a discussion, you said the expression systems over goals. So what does this actually mm -hmm. mean? What is the importance of systems over goals? Well, Jota, you said something right now. Uh, right now, we may act more professional, right? You just you said something to that effect. And um, it kind of goes into forgiveness too, right? So <clears throat> if I want to forgive somebody, I, I have to start acting forgiving, right? <clears throat> um, I just can't wait for the feeling. So um, I, I need, because if I act forgiving, I will become forgiving. If I begin to act compassionate, compassion will follow. Um, if I act angry, I'll be angry. So systems over goals is very similar. That is part of my system. So if I'm focusing on a goal until the date I hit the goal, when I hit the goal, I'm happy, right? Every other day besides when I don't hit the goal, I'm not happy. Versus if I have a system, every time I execute the system, I'm happy because it's pushing me towards my goal. It's pulling me towards the goal. So take, for example, uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. A goal is hitting the summit, right? So every day I don't hit the summit or every day I'm not on Kilimanjaro, I feel kind of sad. Boy, I'm not there, uh, you know, it's so far away. But my system is to train was I'm going to walk everywhere I can. If there's a meeting on the 12th floor, I get there 20 minutes early and I'm going to walk 12 flights of steps. So that's part of my system. And at the end of the day, I say, how many steps did I walk? 
I walked 10,000 steps, 20,000 steps. And so I feel good at the end of every day. I feel good. So I knew that at the end, my system would get me to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. This is very nice because we, in our lives, we set goals mm -hmm. and sometimes we think that goals and systems are more important to uh, our professions rather than our personal lives. But our professional lives and our personal lives are real. They're there. We live them every day and they're definitely interchangeable experiences. Uh, between uh, the personal and professional life we can use on um, in other in either area mm -hmm. so uh, how about um, asking me now a few things <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Jota. I'm so glad I was about to jump in there. So let me let me ask you this. So we're talking about goals here. So what are some things you'd like to accomplish in the next couple of years, three to five years? And they can be personal, they can be professional, Jota. I would say what I'm missing more in life right now is to be independent <laughs> uh, in terms of where I'm um, uh, where I'm found geographically and to be more independent financially. I would like to enjoy life more, to have more time uh, to myself, uh, to enjoy my life more, to have a less stressful everyday life while being creative and doing things I enjoy, um, even in research, in podcasting, uh, in uh, meeting new people. At the same time, I'm looking to have a much uh, more stable personal life uh, because I think that what I do right now and the way I'm doing it really affects my, uh, my personal life in the sense that when I act professionally, I'm not acting in a feminine way. But then in my personal life, I should act in a feminine way. Now, feminists will hate me for saying that, but I didn't mean it like that. What I meant is that it's very hard to switch between being uh, professional. So when one person is professional, it doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman, they act professionally. But as a woman, I have a feminine side and sometimes it takes quite a while to switch from my professional side to my feminine side. And I see this more um, evidently when I'm going on holidays in Greece for four weeks in the summer, how I gradually, uh, how gradually my behavior changes from week to week. Uh, how I interact with people, how I interact, for example, with flirting. Uh, I enjoy it more, I'm more relaxed. And at the end of my holidays, I feel like I'm a completely different person. And when I'm coming back, and I know that I'm going to go through the same process again of being too busy or forgetting about my own personal needs, I don't like it. Yeah, you know, you, you brought up a couple of really interesting uh, points right there and uh, about the feminine, the professional uh, culture. I mean, you, you reminded me of so many experiences in life. Uh, would you say, and you mentioned flirting, right? 
and again, I don't know the Greek language. Uh, I know the Latin language and, and the culture. Uh, maybe, again, I'm asking for your opinion, your experience on this. I have found that in the Anglo-Saxon English culture, what in the Spanish Latin culture, even Italian, what is considered a compliment in the English culture or even American culture, people see as a flirting. So people will say, Nelson, you're flirting. I said, no, I just complimented her. He says, well, why'd you compliment her? And I'm thinking, well, why wouldn't you compliment someone? They have a nice pair of shoes or a nice watch or a bracelet. That's a compliment. That's not a flirt. So I don't know. Do you find that to be the case where in the English setting, it's a flirt, but it might be just, hey, good morning, that your hair looks nice and or something. I, I don't know. Well, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, definitely Greek people are more expressive, uh, but also Greek people, when they make compliments to people of the opposite sex or the same sex, if this is their sexual preference, they normally make a compliment uh, because they're, they want to flirt with you, right? It's just that over here in the UK, I realized that there are very few people who will make you a compliment for flirting uh, purposes, they would actually go just go for it. They wouldn't even compliment you. They would just have a discussion with you, and they would expect to have sex with them, which is a totally turn off. It's a total turn off for me. I want to uh -huh. when I'm flirting with a person, I want to have the nice setting, the nice environment to start feeling desired, and nobody really feels mm -hmm. desired by just thinking, yeah, I'll just buy you a couple of drinks and then uh, we're just going to have like maybe a dead talk and this would be my type of flirting. No, this is not flirting, I'm sorry. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think I'm uh, old fashioned. I think I'm too feminine in that way. Uh, I'm very professional. Uh, when it comes to my job, but when it comes to flirting, yes, I expect if a man that I'm interested in, he wants to feel desired by me, I want to equally feel desired by him. Otherwise, I, if there's not uh, a mutual desire, um, there's nothing really there. Mm -hmm. So you could say it's more of the human aspect. It's a human aspect and how it is expressed. Of course, there are the, you have norms in every country that when you go to work, you have to behave in this way. When you want to speak to a colleague about a matter, you just maybe say it in that way. When you want to meet a new person, when you're flirting with somebody, you do it, you do it this way. Or for example, to show that you're interested uh, in someone, you will have to ask them out to go to the cinema, to go to the movies, uh, to, watch, to go to the theater, to go for dinner, whatever. Uh, but I think uh, the best way of flirting someone is as soon as you meet them. Not just like, yeah, very nice to meet you. Uh, we can exchange phone numbers and we can meet afterwards. I think it's that rapport you built right there and then when you meet someone to really feel there's something there and to look forward to uh, seeing this person again. 
And that's a key thing you said, to build rapport and then to look forward to seeing that person again. Um, that, that, that's very, very true. That's very, and then something, my goodness, we could have a whole nother talk on that, on the, um, being feminine in a professional environment. Um, and I, I always thought that was an interesting challenge for females in the military. Um, but I knew some that, and I, I always really admired how they could do it, how they could still be feminine, very feminine, lead men and be very professional. And I, I always watched that. I always really, I was really, really impressed how some of them could really pull it off. And actually sometimes, actually I learned a lot about leadership from a lot of those females, female soldiers, because maybe some compassion and empathy was lacking in my military skills, leadership, and I would borrow it from them. How they could be feminine in a professional environment and lead. So I always thought that was a very, um, very interesting uh, dynamic right there. The um, and you know we could have a whole talk on flirting too, which um, again certain cultures, to me it's just a compliment, just a compliment. There's nothing ulterior behind it, and other times it's hey I'm a compliment because of something else. So even even that. Um, but yeah, yeah, we could, we could ever have that, but let's, let's kind of take this. Um, can you talk about a, a habit or a, um, a, something that you use for success, uh, a personal success habit or a routine that you use? Well, I, I don't have one thing that leads uh, to success or like a clear habit or a routine, but definitely what I've noticed is whenever I had a success was that I was grabbing an opportunity, I was going for it, I was active, I was not overthinking, I was spontaneous, I was open, I was out there and ready for it. So in most of the cases, being successful is about how ready we are to be exposed and how ready we are to uh, accept new things in our lives. And only when we are open to new experiences, that's when the big changes happen and that's what leads us to success. Persistence is also another aspect. Uh, and I would say persistence and being open are the key things. Now, I'm not always like that. Um, and I'm trying to consciously remind myself of those two things that have worked for me. Hmm. Okay. And so I'm going to kind of go back now, since we were talking about uh, flirting here, and if you could just... Share so for an expat female, mm -hmm. Greek, living in a city like London, in a city in a country like the UK, which is totally different from Greece. Okay, talk to us about um, your experiences. I mean, what does an expat female Greek scientist? To me, you're a scientist. You're a lecturer, but you're a scientist, and you're training scientists. Okay, what is that life like? It is challenging. 
uh, for various reasons. It's uh, the lifestyle, it's the expectations um, uh, that I have professionally or what my, what my academic institution expects me to do. And sometimes it's really hard to find the balance. But definitely the way of life really affects uh, what's going on here. Um, I would say if I was an academic in Greece, the lifestyle is much, is much more uh, relaxed. So, for example, and also the weather helps. You could go for a, for a drink by the sea, right? Right now in Athens, it's 15, 16 degrees Celsius and it's January. And over here in the UK, it's like 4 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. So also the weather affects the way you see things or if there is a specific lifestyle here that most of the people would go for drinks after work at six o'clock by nine o'clock they just go home and sleep whereas in Greece I might go back home at six or seven and then go out for dinner and instead of staying at home uh, up to midnight before I go to bed I could have gone out and meet friends until 11 o'clock. Nobody here goes out until 11 o'clock on weekdays. So it's not just the fact that people in Greece stay out till later. It's the mentality that they feel relaxed to do so, even if they wake up at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning the following day. It's mm -hmm. a whole approach. Mm -hmm. And this okay. really helps because even uh, despite the hardships of the financial crisis in Greece, uh, still I think the lifestyle in Greece has helped a lot people to deal with, what's, uh, with what has been happening for the past 10 years. Right. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of Latin America. Um, reminds me a lot of Latin America. Yeah. No matter how bad the economy is, no matter how bad the coup, whatever, dictator, the party does not stop. Okay? Yeah, because this lighten, uh, lightens up the, the spirit of people, right? Uh, they feel that there's more to life or maybe they just start forgetting about all the bad things that happen to them or the difficulties uh, they have in their lives. So I think it really helps mm -hmm. the, it's because in a sense, what we discussed so far is about how we perceive life. What is our stance towards life? And if you have a lighter version uh, in your personal life, it definitely helps how you also look to your professional issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One definitely feeds the other. One definitely feeds the other. So, well, let's do this. We're kind of coming up to our, uh, our time limit here. So, Jota, is there any one or two messages, uh, pearls that you'd like to leave uh, our listeners? Well, what I want to say to the listeners, even though I'm not the person who always follows that, uh, those, uh, those props is to, to love ourselves, to be forgive, uh, to be, um, open, 
to new experiences, to be persistent, uh, to never really forget who we are. And um, I think love is the most important thing. And this fuels us to do great things in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Persistence and love. Um, actually, there's, um, there's a chapter on that, on Think and Grow Rich, oh. a book by Napoleon Hill. It, um, it's persistent love and sex. He throws all of those into one chapter on business, and it's called Sex Transmutation. How the pull of, of a love interest, you could call it, how that can uh, almost give us a superpower to focus on things. Mm -hmm. It's a whole book. It's a whole chapter in a book on business. So, um, so we've reached a time. First of all, I want to thank you, thank you, thank you very much for this idea of the collaboration. Uh, it's a fantastic idea. And I also want to thank you for uh, what you shared and for opening up like that. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Nelson. I really enjoyed this experience. Um, I think there are so many things that we can learn from one another, uh, not just you and me, I mean, in general, from our audience, from uh, our guests. And uh, it's a life journey. That's another life journey, actually. And mm -hmm. we definitely learn a lot from that. And I would like also to thank your audience and my audience for listening till now to to the end <laughs> yeah most definitely now Jota, before we take off how can people follow you how can people reach you um please people can either uh listen to the global greek influence podcast and contact me or they can actually contact me through linkedin uh, by messaging me uh, and if they would like to find more information about uh, what the global Greek influence is and how it can help them. Okay, well, fantastic. And, uh, and I think Invest in America is also a podcast uh, in, through which people can learn a lot, not just about real estate, but also about you. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's very important to know that the person you are going to work with uh, is a nice person, is a person you can trust, and is a person who really has experiences, who has a message, and that he chooses also to talk with people who also have a message to this world. And that is very true. That is very true. And um, before we wrap up, everyone, you can follow me at Investing in America, the podcast on iTunes, Investing in America, and uh, also have a book coming out called um, Investing in America, How Foreign Investors Can Invest in U.S. Real Estate. And I hope to have that coming out the draft in the next 90 days. So stay tuned. So everyone, thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.